The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Well, good morning. How's everyone doing? I I am so uh, honored to uh, be with you. Uh, This uh, uh, church has uh, meant a lot to me over the years. The preaching that has come out of this church obviously has really shaped uh, many, but it's shaped me as a pastor and follower of Christ. So it's really an honor for me to get to be with you. Uh, the text we read is one of my favorite texts. Uh, I'm going to uh, set up where we're going, and then, and then we're going to dive back into it. But um, basically, uh, I've been given the task of, of speaking to how the gospel propels fervent discipleship and mission. And I think we see that so clearly in this text. Uh, but let me give you a little, little quick background. So Paul has preached, uh, has received a Macedonian call, moved into Greece, uh, been preaching uh, in, in Philippi, and ultimately gets to Thessalonica, preaches the gospel, and a, and a uh, new church is birthed. Uh, but eventually, uh, you can read about this in Acts 16 and 17, eventually what happens is there's a... Uh, I, um, a mob that is created by the Jewish uh, religious leaders who are jealous of him. And eventually uh, he's forced out. Uh, he goes off to Berea, uh, a neighboring town, and he preaches the gospel there. The word gets back to the religious leaders in Thessalonica that he's preaching the gospel there now. So they actually follow him and go to Berea and drive him out of Berea as well. And so Paul is thinking, man, if I'm getting this much heat... Uh, for preaching the gospel. What about that young church that I left behind in Thessalonica? So he sends his young disciple Timothy back to Thessalonica to check on the, the, that newfound church to make sure they're still standing strong. And then Timothy meets up with Paul in Corinth and gives them a glowing report that not only are they still standing for Christ, But the message of the gospel is going out through them to all the region. And so Paul pens this letter that is in our Bible as 1 Thessalonians. He pens this as a response to hearing this good report. In fact, in chapter 3 and verse 6, if you want to just look down there really quickly, it says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always rem- remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. What he means there is now I am experiencing life the way it was meant to be lived because my life uh, got, by God's grace, by, by God's power, has been used to impact yours. And to hear this report uh, fills him with joy. <clears throat> and so, in chapter 1, I think what we see, what we just read, is again, what happens when the gospel truly takes root uh, in a people? <clears throat> How are they transformed? And, and, and what is the result? What is the overflow of the gospel taking root in a heart of a person or in a group of people? like this church. And so we didn't read uh, verse uh, 2 and 3, but he says, we thank God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, 
remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Those three phrases, uh, work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope, the way that it reads in the Greek is actually that uh, the, the first word flows out of the second word of each one of those phrases. So in other words, it is work that is produced by faith. It is labor that is produced by love. It is steadfastness that is the result of hope. And this is important because it sets up where he's going to go with the rest of the chapter. Verse 3 is talking about the evidences of true gospel reception, regeneration, salvation. All right, The evidences are... The evidences of faith, love, and hope is that faith will work itself out. In other words, I, as a former Muslim, I talk to Muslims all the time. And they think that you just pray a prayer, receive Christ, and you can go do whatever you want. And I say, no. The Bible is clear that we don't work uh, in order to earn God's favor, but because we already have received it, our works are a product of our salvation, or rather, even a proof of our salvation, as James says, You say you have uh, faith apart from works, and I say to you that I will show you my faith by my works, okay? And then uh, love is demonstrated in in, uh, labor. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.14 says the love of Christ compels us. It pushes us forward to live no longer for ourselves, but to live for him who died and rose again. And so there is a labor that's a joy that comes out of it because it's fueled by love. And then hope demonstrates itself in steadfastness, and in perseverance. First Peter speaks of our being born again to a living hope that is being kept for us in heaven, and we also are being guarded through faith. We also are being, uh, by God's grace, he's giving us the faith to keep on believing all the way till we receive that inheritance. But it's that hope of heaven, the hope of glory, that is, that is uh, fueling our ability to endure all right and so that is very important with again where he's going because what he's trying to show is how the gospel will bear fruit and will show evidences in 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 your life and again as i say the evidences will be fervent discipleship and mission and you see it in our text so let's look again uh, beginning in verse four he says for we know brothers loved by god that he is chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the holy spirit and with full conviction now that's a huge verse he's saying look i know that you received the the gospel but not just merely in words so that means there are some people who receive it just in word it's like it goes in one ear and out the other it's like the parable of the sower and the seeds that jesus uh, uh shares where he basically he talks about uh depends on what kind of soil the seed falls on. Some of the seed falls on rocky soil and it immediately springs up for joy of the word. But eventually when the sun and the wind beat against it, it withered away and died because it had no root within itself. So in other words, it wasn't truly, uh, there wasn't truly salvation there. There was no root of salvation and it revealed itself because it withered away and died. And this is what he's saying. I know, Thessalonians, that's not you. I know that doesn't describe you. And how do I know it? Because he says, I believe 
that the gospel came to you in power and in the Holy Spirit, so with evidences of the Spirit moving. And then he says, and with full conviction. And I think the rest of the chapter, he's going to unpack what full conviction looks like. Full conviction looks like. When you really have received the gospel, all right, it'll show itself. Verse 9 says, you're going to turn from idols to serve God, okay? There's going to be a moment where you become a servant of God, where you turn from uh, false gods to be a servant of God. You, uh, verse 6 says, you became followers of us and of the Lord. So you turn, you repent, you start following God, you follow his word. And then verse 7 says, you became an example. Now, it's for others to follow, as you followed us and you followed the Lord, now others are following you and following the Lord. And then ultimately, verse 8, the word of the Lord sounds forth from you into every region. You become a missionary. You become a proclaimer. And you become a seeker of the kingdom. Verse 10 says that you're waiting for the Son who delivers us from the wrath to come. These are the evidences. Now, I don't, I don't necessarily think that it, it has to happen chronologically like this, but what he's saying is this is the fruit of gospel taking root in your heart. And so I want to just take those one by one if I could. Number one, I want you to see that it starts with the gospel. Again, a, a proper understanding of the gospel a proper reception of the gospel is what's going to fuel everything else that's going to come. And the three key phrases are when he calls them brothers, loved by God, and, and that God has chosen you. Those three phrases say a whole lot to us about the good news of Jesus Christ. So he calls them brothers. How can, how can I call you brothers? Because I know that God has loved you. That's what he's saying there. So he's calling them brothers because he knows God has loved them. In other words, God has uh, adopted them into his family. And so now they have God as their father. They're children of God. And now, therefore, you are brothers. And then he says, how do I know God has loved you, basically? Because he has chosen you. And friend, his choosing is not because we were so choice or lovely, but it's owing to his sovereign grace. As Ephesians 1 says, that we were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. Before you did anything to deserve it. You were chosen. And this, you, you were adopted, you were predestined in love. In other words, love is demonstrated in the fact that He chose you before you did anything to merit that choosing. You see it? Deuteronomy 7, he tells the uh, Israelites, he says, The Lord God chose you to be his treasured possession, not because you were great in number, because you were the fewest, actually, the least. He says, no, but because I loved you. It's owing to love. Love must be freely given. And this is so huge for me coming out of Islam. It's not something that can be earned by merit again. It must be freely given. If I love my wife for what she does for me, then I don't really love her. I love what she does for me. Right? And that's why Romans 5.8 is my favorite verse as a former Muslim. God demonstrates his love to us in this. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrates love. He shows love. The essence of love is favor that is given before we do anything to deserve it. And so, I want you to see that this gospel is a powerful force to radically change the trajectory of someone's life. 
when I remember, as Ephesians 2 says, that I was dead in my sin and trespasses. Not that I was just sick in my sin where I could go take some medicine or go see a doctor, but I'm a dead man needing someone to make me alive. In other words, I have no spiritual blip on the screen. Uh, I'm flatlined. I will never move towards God. That's what the Bible teaches, right? And then we are dominated by our flesh. It goes on to say in Ephesians 2, we are by nature carrying out the desires of our flesh. So when we talk about Christian freedom, what did Christ come to set us free from? Not free so that we can go do whatever we want. He actually, well, maybe I should say he changes our wants through his spirit, but he actually uh, is delivering us from carrying out the desires of our flesh so that we would do what he wants, which leads to life, all right? So we were, man, you were, when I remember, I was an enemy of God, all right? He says, I was by nature children of wrath. The Bible teaches Jesus didn't come into a neutral world where some people became good and deserved heaven, and some people became bad and deserved hell. No, he came into a world that was in complete rebellion against him, right? John 3, verse 35 and 36. I love this. It says, the Father loves the Son and has given uh, uh, all authority to Him. Whoever believes in Him has everlasting life. Whoever does not believe in Him does not have everlasting life, but the wrath of God remains on Him. That word remain is key. doesn't mean that they moved under the wrath of God. They were always there just as everyone were, was. There's two types of people. Those who are still under the wrath of God, bearing down on them, and those who by God's grace and mercy have been removed. You see it? So when I remember these things, friends, it changes the way I look at my brother and sister in Christ, and it changes the way that I look at the world around me. So again, the gospel fuels discipleship and mission. I love how in Philippians 2, Paul says, uh, put the interest of others before your own. Count others more significant than yourself. And he knows that they would never do that in their own uh, natural flesh. And that they, we, no human will do that. And so he says, Has, Have this mind in you, which is yours, in Christ Jesus, who though he was equal to God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be held on to, grasped. Instead, he emptied himself, right? Put on human flesh, and he became obedient to God all the way to the point of the death of the cross. And so what he's saying is, Look and remember what Christ has done for you. We certainly are not more significant than him. But if you will, he counted us more significant in the act of emptying himself. He, he, uh, he um, laid his life down for us. He is certainly more significant than us. He, uh, he put our interests before his own. So he goes, when you remember that gospel, then that will fuel you to put others first. And when we take our eyes off the gospel and we forget, or maybe we start slipping into an error of thinking that I deserve something from what I've done, uh, then that's when entitlement sets in. So let, let me just re- really quickly illustrate, illustrate it this way. Um, being in Texas, I fly Southwest Airlines a lot. I don't know if uh, y'all have flown Southwest, but that's the one airline, to my knowledge, that doesn't assign you a specific seat, Right? You, you get a boarding group, like A1 through 30 boards first, A31 through 60 next, then B1 through 30. And, you know, the A1 through 30 crew, they go, they go first, and they get to pick wherever they want. And usually, if, if you watch this, I've never seen it happen where the first person goes all the way to the very back, right? And, you know, I'll, I'll sit by the, the bathroom. That doesn't happen, right? They come on the plane, 
And they start sitting right at the front because I want to be the first one off. I want to make sure I got stuff up here for my, uh, I'm in place for my stuff. And it's all about me. And they go about halfway down the plane until now that's too far down. So then now the windows start to be taken. By the time the C-minus crew gets on, all right, they're looking at a plane full of available middle seats, right? And the way you get an A1, A2, whatever, is you've got to pay for it. Or you've got to, for sure, go online early to get your boarding pass, right? You, you, you can't just skate in last second to the air, airport and go to the kiosk and get, you're going to get stuck with C-minus, right? So... One day I was in the C-minus crew, and I was walking on, and there was a father and a son in front of me. And they walk on, and sure enough, uh, and I see it, uh, a plane full of available middle seats. And the father had the audacity, right, to look at the lady on the first row aisle and say, Ma'am, um, do you mind sitting in the second row uh, in the middle seat so that I could sit up here with my, my, my son? And she just went, ah, oh. like she was like appalled. And everyone around them was like, ah. Oh. Like she didn't say a word, but it was like their, their face said, like, who are you, Mr. C minus, right? To come on this plane. And, you know, I, I, I paid for this or whatever it might be, right? And, and just the look, she goes, never mind. And he just moved on and asked somebody else down the way. And I thought, man, that's so interesting. I'm not saying this could happen, but what if the way she got that A1 or A2 ticket was different? What if the way she got it is because she missed her previous flight and then she ran to the, uh, you know, the powers that be at Southwest Airlines and begged them, please let me on the, on the next flight. And they said, it's booked. There's no, and she's like, I've got to get on. And she's crying. And let's just say somebody overseeing her has compassion and says, you know what? She can have my ticket. Again, I'm not saying you could do this, but let's say that's how she got on the plane. Now enter father and son. Excuse me, ma'am, do you mind sitting in the second row, uh, a middle seat, so I could sit here with my son? I bet she would pop out of that chair and say, it's yours. Why? Because, man, I'm on the plane. Right? I don't even deserve to be on the plane. Do you see how when we think we did something to contribute to our salvation, like we earned it, then entitlement sets in. But when we remember we were enemies, we were separated, we could never move towards Him. But by God's grace, He chose us even when we were sinners. That changes the way you look at the world. And so it starts with the gospel. And the gospel, number uh, two or whatever point I'm on, it makes you... A servant. Look what he says in verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us uh, how you, the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The first evidence, I, I would say, is that you turn from false gods, as I, sh- as I shared, to serve the living and true God. So this reminds me that sin didn't cause us to stop worshiping and serving um, uh, something or someone. Right? The fall didn't cause mankind to quit worshiping. It caused mankind to start worshiping the wrong thing. Right? To worship really ourselves. But when you come to Christ and you understand the treasure that he is, as Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like a man who finds a treasure and he buries it in the field and he sells all of his possessions to purchase the field. You relinquish and you let go of everything else because you have found the treasure of your life in Jesus. 
And that's the evidence that you have truly received the gospel. I'm preaching through 2 Corinthians 2 at my church. And we just came to the passage where Paul says, Thanks be to God that in Christ he leads me always, leads us always in a triumphal procession. And through us spreads the knowledge of the fragrance of, of him, the, the fragrance of the knowledge of him, excuse me, everywhere. And I love that picture. If you don't know what he's referring to there, it's the Roman army coming back and they would take the captives from their war uh, through the streets in a triumphant procession and they would mock and jeer these prisoners all the way to the square where they would be executed. Now you got to understand, Paul isn't seeing himself as one of the soldiers triumphant. He is literally seeing himself taken captive by Christ. My will has been taken captive. When did that happen? When he was on the road to Damascus to hunt down Christians and God met him. Why do you persecute me, Saul? And he meets the Lord Jesus and ultimately learns that he's going to suffer for him. And he's going to carry his name before all the rulers and the Gentiles of the world. And so, man, he has his entire will taken captive and he sees himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. And so he says, thanks be to God for it though. Why? Because this is happening in Christ. In other words, Paul is saying, my suffering, uh, shame and rejection and persecution from the world is showing me that I, I am identified and I am united with Christ. Jesus says in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. If you were of the world, it would love you. But since I called you out of the world, it hates you. No wonder the early church rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul is saying. Again, it proves that you belong to Jesus. Just as Jesus was led through a triumphal procession, if you imagine when he was carrying the cross through Jerusalem, ultimately to go to Calvary. He's saying, now my life is united with him. No wonder, he says, I want to fellowship in his suffering. Be conformed to his death. He rejoices in it because it proves that he belongs to Jesus. And so, this is what discipleship looks like. This is what it looks like to become a follower. Is that, as he said in Matthew 16, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. I didn't understand the cost of discipleship when I first became a Christian. I don't have time to share my whole story this morning, but basically I was raised in a Muslim home. My family is from Iran. I became a Christian because I read a New Testament as a 17-year-old that I received by a second-grade tutor 10 years prior. And I read it, and I was reading it under the covers with a flashlight so my dad, who was a very prominent Muslim, wouldn't find out what I was doing. I was investigating Christianity. Finally, I got to the book of Romans, and I read about a righteousness that comes apart from the law, and it comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And ultimately, I came to faith in Christ. I hid my faith from my dad. I was so scared what would happen if he found out. He was my hero, the guy I looked up to, and so I would sneak out to go to church, hide my Bible until my dad found out, and he made me choose between him and Jesus. And by God's strength alone, I say this so you know I'm not boasting, because everything in me wanted to say, forget it. I'll stay a Muslim. I didn't want to lose my dad. I said, Dad, if I have to choose between you and Jesus, then I choose Jesus. If I have to choose between my earthly father and my heavenly father, then I choose my heavenly father. So my father disowns me, tells me to get out of his face. I go to my room, 
And I said, Lord, what's happening? How are you letting this happen to me? And the Lord led me to Matthew 10, where Jesus says, Do not suppose I've come to bring peace to the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword, for I've come to turn a man against his father. And I'm like, whoa, that just happened for me. A daughter against her mother. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And that's when I first understood what it means to be a servant of Christ, to become a disciple of Christ. It's not just to believe the right things, but it's to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Him. And for me... My dad was still who I was serving. For you, it may be something else. But when you understand, people say, man, I couldn't let go of my dad to follow Jesus. I say, man, if you can't, then you don't know what you're getting in Jesus. Because if you see the treasure that he is, you will walk away to radical, again, fervent discipleship, following him. Then he says, you became followers of us and of the Lord. Just like us. In other words, you imitated us. All right, And so now you became a follower of us and of the Lord. Just as Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He submitted his life to the will of Jesus. Jesus submitted his life to the will of the Father. He said, my food is to do the will of the Father. And a true Christian who has been transformed by the gospel will not only turn from idols, but then submit his life to the word of God. Every part of his life. God's word is leading us. In Isaiah 30, the prophet says, Woe to my people who make plans for their life without consulting me. How many of us do that? The way we came to Christ was because the word of God was implanted in our hearts by grace, and God gave us the ability to believe, and we believed and were saved. Guess what? The same way is how you follow him. You receive the word of God, and then you take a step. But so many of us go to everything else to ask what we should do instead of going to God's Word. And Isaiah 30, verse 18 says, Blessed are those who wait on the Lord, for they will hear a voice in their ear saying, This is the way. Turn in it, verse 21, whether they turn right or left. And so, friend, a true gospel reception and regeneration will show itself in repenting, turning away from idols, becoming a servant, submitting our life to the Word of God, so much so that we become examples. And this is the part you're probably not going to like. But verse 7 says, You receive the Word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Again, we rejoice because it proves our sonship. And then he says, So that you became an example to the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And so here's what I want to say, and I said you may not like this part, but we become the greatest example worthy to follow as a model of Christian discipleship when we follow Jesus, not when everything is going rosy for us, but specifically when everything is going against us. As 1 Peter 4.19 says, Let those who suffer according to the will of God continue doing good as to a faithful Creator. In other words, when you continue following him in suffering, you are shouting to the world around you, I believe he is faithful even in this. Even in this. And this is what he goes on to say in chapter 2, verse 13. When you received the word, you received it as the word of God which is working amongst you. 
and you suffered the same affliction as your brothers and sisters did in Jerusalem. And I'm telling you, you become an example when you follow him in those trials. In my life, there was a period of time when I went through a dark period, and without going into all the details, um, I would have panic attacks, I'd have anxiety, um, I'd have cold sweats, and the only way I made it through that time was every night getting up and just reading the Psalms and just praying and saying, God, I don't know what's happening, but I trust you. Well, guess what? A couple of years after that, my uh, older brother, uh, who is not a Christian, is a, uh, just a nominal Muslim, living in Los Angeles, has an autistic son, has a job that was crumbling, has a lot of stress in his life, calls me out of the blue and says, Afshin, uh, I had a panic attack last night. Never had one before. Couldn't breathe. I had to run out of the room. Just explaining it to me. He goes, I remember you used to have them. He goes, how did you get through it? And by the way, this was a two-week period of my life that I would never talk about. It was, it, was, I, it was the darkest time of my life. And I said, bro. And I just started sharing with them the peace that surpasses all understanding that is found in Christ. That Jesus goes on the deck of the boat and he calms the storm, right? That Jesus says, do not worry about tomorrow for today has its own troubles. I shared several verses with him. And after I shared those verses, he's like, man, I need Jesus. All right, and I'm an evangelist by nature, so when I hear that, I got that, that's like amazing to me, right? And he goes, "What do I need to do?" Okay, that's like for an evangelist is like, you know, believe. That's the only work, right? But I was so stunned; it was my brother. I was like, "What happens next?" I don't know. And so finally, I was like, "I said, believe in Jesus." The scripture says, "Believe in Him, and you will be saved." And so my brother said, "I didn't have to say, are you ready to pray?" He just said, "Lord, I call on you, save me." And so I was able to lead my brother to Christ. But look at me, every eye on me. God took the darkest time in my life and he redeemed it. And he used it for good. So when you receive the gospel, that's what your fellowship will look like. And then ultimately, where does mission come in? Verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. In other words, Paul is saying, man, you received it in the power of the Holy Spirit, and I know that because it moved you to full conviction, and I know that because you walked away from idols. You became a servant of Him. You received the Word with joy even when you were being afflicted, so much so that now others were following you. I think of Paul when he talks about his chains in Philippians 1 you know, that is actually serving to advance the gospel that the brothers on the outside are more bold to preach because of my chains. So in other words, you're becoming an example. You're inspiring others through your fervent discipleship again in the midst of uh, affliction. And now he's saying, I've replicated myself in you. I don't have to come to your region because the word is going forth from you in your region and even outside of your region everywhere. And I want you to hear me say this. The gospel is a sending gospel. It, 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 by nature, when we get it, it causes us to be propelled out of our comfort zone to go to people who maybe don't look like us, don't dress like us, don't talk to us. Excuse me, don't talk like us. That's what I meant to say. To go and share the news of Christ. 
It is a sending gospel. All the way from when God told Abraham, leave your father's country. Get uncomfortable. Leave your comfort zone. I I get that. Leave your father and go. And I'll make you a great nation. And through you, you'll become a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. Right? You want to see that gospel go out? It's going to come at a cost of walking away. John 10, Jesus says, I have sheep that are not of this fold, and I must draw them also. What is he saying? He's saying, Jews, it's not just for your tribe. It's for all tribes, tongues, and nations. And then in Acts 10, one of my favorite scenes, when Peter has that vision on the rooftop of this sheet coming down with all kinds of animals, and God's Spirit says, take and eat. And Peter says, I will not touch what is common and unclean. And God says, don't call what I have made common and unclean. And right then there's a rap at the door and a Gentile man named Cornelius has sent people to call for Peter. And as you know, Peter comes into a Gentile man's home. You talk about a divide, a racial divide there. I mean, that's, that's as, as racially divided as you could be. And he walks into a Gentile man's home, preaches the gospel. The Holy Spirit falls upon them. He baptizes them. And when he gets back, the church actually rebukes him for what he did in Jerusalem. And he says, if they receive the Holy Spirit just in the same way that I did, who am I to stand in God's way? And I love this. The Bible says in Acts that the church fell silent and they glorified God because they understood the message of the gospel was not just for them, but for the Gentiles. And I'm saying to you, this is how you know radical, excuse me, this is how you know the gospel has taken root is this kind of radical, stepping out of our comfort zone, fervent mission to go and be uncomfortable, to knock on the door, not even overseas, just across the street, and knock on the door of our neighbor. And I say one last thing, and I got a story and I'll be done. Because you always have to end with a story, don't you? Um, they became kingdom seekers. And this is a whole other sermon, but verse 10 says, And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. If there's anything the pandemic has taught us, is that this world is broken and is groaning for a new creation. This world is not our hope, right? And so much the church needs to remember that our hope is not in this world, in this country. Our hope is not in whoever gets elected in a couple of weeks. Our hope ultimately is in Christ and His kingdom. And people who have received the gospel have this kind of kingdom-minded, eternal perspective. Paul writes in Philippians 3 that there are some who walk as enemies of the cross with their minds set on earthly things. But he says our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior. And when you have that kind of eternal perspective on life, then you will not think about your comfort and your uh, safety, let's say, above all things. You'll step out. And say, God, if you're calling me, I'll go. And I want to close with a story that really uh, impacted me uh, when it comes to missions. And I want to share it with you. It's a story of a young man named B.J. Higgins. And here's a young man who received the gospel and understood what his mission was. To see the gospel spread to the nations. And he understood that his life was very limited and he had an eternal perspective. 
And it became a fervent, radical discipleship and mission story. And here's the book. I know you probably can't see it uh, everywhere, but this book is called I Would Die For You. And it's written by his parents. But let me tell you the story about B.J. Higgins. B.J., when he was eight years old, received the uh, gospel, uh, heard it, preached at a youth meeting. He wasn't in the youth group, but his dad was on staff at the church, and he came, heard the gospel, and literally becomes a, a passionate evangelist, sharing his faith uh, on the school bus, at, in the classroom. His parents told me that he becomes a you know, teenager, 12, 13 or so, and he's, um, he's on his uh, computer uh, sharing his faith, and they come, they, well, they, they come and go, uh, BJ, get to bed. Uh, it's your curfew. And BJ's like, I'm sharing my faith. And they're like, okay, by all means, carry on, you know? <laughs> I mean, I hope I have that problem with my kids, right? Oh, you're sharing your faith. Okay. So anyways, that, I, and I'm not trying to put this kid on a pedestal. Again, I just want to show you one kid who got it. And at the age of 15, B.J. Higgins felt called to the mission field. In fact, he told his uh, older sister that we're going to go to Morocco together one day. And um, uh, before he made it to Morocco, he went to Peru on a uh, mission trip, and he contracted a rare disease. And after a six-month battle with this disease, B.J. passed away at 15. And this book is written by his parents taking the writings of B.J. in his journal. And some of the things he writes is just unbelievable as a 14, 15-year-old. It's time that we as the professed Christians of America wake up from our sleep of lethargy and hypocrisy and stop only living for Christ on Sundays and Wednesdays and start acting as Christ says all of his disciples must act. We must die to ourselves daily, forget our comfort zones, our cliques of friends, and go out and share the love and rescuing truth of Jesus Christ with the lost, empty, suffering, and dying people of the world all around us as Christ has commanded. And man, I heard about this story but I didn't know my connection to it. I was in the Middle East, training pastors, came back. My wife picks me up, hands me this book. She says, you're not going to believe this, but turn to page 32. So I turn to page 32, and it says, when BJ was in elementary school at the age of eight, he had just heard Afshin Ziafat preach, and he accepted Christ. And I had no idea that I was the guy who preached. Now, real quickly, side note, in case you think I'm telling the story just to kind of boast about playing a small role. First of all, you can't boast about salvation. Salvation belongs to God. But in case you still are thinking that, I did some research. It was my first speaking engagement ever. So you know my message was really choppy, horrible, like Jesus loves you. Let's pray. I mean, you know, so don't you dare tell me God can't use you. Well, listen, before I pray, I got the rest of the story. Because you might be saying, why would God take a 15-year-old Again, I say to you, he had an eternal perspective. He wanted his life to count for eternity. Guess what? His parents found me. They email me online. They say, hey, you led our son to Christ. I go, yeah, I know. I got the book. You know? And they're in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I go, I'm going to be there in two weeks. And so they take me out to dinner, and they tell me the rest of the story. And guess what? After B.J. Higgins passed away, uh, they took his ashes, and they went with the older sister to Morocco. And they went on a hill overlooking a Muslim village. Now, don't let it be lost on you that I was a former Muslim who preached when he became a Christian. And so they spread out his ashes on this hill overlooking this Muslim village, pray for the Muslim village, and come back. And they thought that was the end of the story. 
Later they found out that the Muslim guide that led them to the top of that hill, okay, was so blown away by BJ's story. He kept asking questions. Why are you doing this? Tell me about your son. And finally, they gave him a Bible. And that guy ends up, later they found out, he became a Christian. And now, today, he is the pastor of the underground church in that village in Morocco. So BJ's life, through his death, is impacting Morocco today. Jesus says, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it will bear much fruit. Now he's referring to his own death bearing fruit in our lives. But I believe the Bible is telling us, look, you can hold on to your life and your comfort and your plans. And you may not have to die like BJ did. But listen to me, you can hold on to that and it can be about you. But you may not have to die like BJ did physically, but maybe you have to die to your dreams, to your plans, to your comfort. And I know many of you in this room have done that. And I hope that we see that when we understand what God has done for us in Christ, it propels us to follow Him fervently and to step out of our comfort zones with the gospel message. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you, God, for your word. And God, we pray, Jesus, that we would not only be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And whatever in this text stood out to us, Lord, Holy Spirit, whatever you're speaking to us, God, give us the courage to be obedient. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us when we were unlovable, for choosing us when we were not the, the choicest, the, the most in the world, we were the least. Thank you, Jesus, for your love. And God, may we be your ambassadors. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.